The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's good to be here with you. <clears throat> See a lot of familiar faces and some new faces in the room, too. I just got back from late last night, actually, from a week of teacher training, uh, the IMS teacher trainee cohort, and this time we were immersed in the topic of sila, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit today. Sila can also be, this is a Pali word, which was a language spoken at the time of the Buddha, Um, and it has been, it can be translated a different, in a a variety of different English words, but um, ethical conduct is a common translation, or morality, and often virtue, which is a translation that I tend to gravitate towards these days. I want to start by reading this. It's called The the Perfection of Virtue. It's from a treatise on the Paramis, um, translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. The perfection of virtue, or sila, should be thought of as follows. Even the waters of the Ganges cannot wash away the stain of hatred, yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even yellow sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. Virtue is the unique adornment of good people, surpassing the adornments cherished by average folk such as necklaces and earrings. Virtue should be reflected on as the basis for rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, punishment, and a hellish rebirth, as praised by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse, as the basis for security. Virtue surpasses material wealth, because thieves cannot confiscate it, because it enables one to achieve supreme sovereignty over one's own mind. Virtue surpasses the sovereignty of warriors, kings, and priests. Virtue surpasses the achievement of beauty, for it makes one beautiful even to one's enemies. It cannot be vanquished by the adversities of aging and sickness, Since it is the foundation for states of happiness, virtue surpasses such dwellings as palaces and mansions. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, virtue is superior to troops of elephants, chariots, and infantry, as well as such devices as mantras, spells, and blessings, for it depends on oneself, not on others. Esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements as a soil for the origination of all the Buddha qualities, the beginning, and the chief of all the qualities issuing in Buddhahood, one should guard diligently and thoroughly perfect virtue as a hen guards its eggs. Isn't that beautiful? It's hard to think of what I can offer to follow such. (laughs) Can I go home now? I love that. So I'll give it a try anyway. (laughs) 
think sila as a topic or ethical conduct kind of gets shortchanged in our um, Western culture. We've embraced our the cultivation of the mind or this mind training and prioritized sitting on the cushion and doing formal practices such as that, going on retreat. And they're beautiful ways to practice and support our freedom. But also, and also, <coughs> developing this capacity to um, live ethical lives is so important. And in fact, the Buddha didn't separate the two. They were totally integrated, right? This development of wisdom and its expression in the world. And the expression of sila um, <coughs> is beautiful. Right? And it's actually beyond what we might even think about as compassion. Right? Compassion is this beautiful energy of the heart that allows us to care about our, our own suffering and the suffering that we encounter in others and in the world. And ethics, or sila, is a way of um, protecting or supporting each other on our paths. And one common expression of sila that you might have heard about is the precepts, or this the sort of training that we, these um, maybe guidelines or boundaries that we set for ourselves when we're in community. Often we'll take the precepts when we go on a retreat, even if it's a half day or day long or longer. But these guidelines really support us to find some safety in community. Right? It doesn't always feel safe. It often doesn't feel safe to be in community for many of us a lot of the time. But setting some boundaries and, and establishing some agreements about how we might uh, move about in community can really support that. So sila is strongly an ethical, uh, is strongly a relational practice, right? It's deeply rooted in sangha, in what it means to be a community. And some of the, the five common precepts that we take when we're on retreat or we might bring to mind each morning just to support us in living the way that we want to in accordance with our values. Um, the precept of, or the training of, uh, they're all around non-harming. So um, agreeing to train in not killing other living beings, agreeing to purify our speech and be careful of how we might speak and listen in the world, um, agreeing to not misuse our sexual energy or misuse intoxicants, and then agreeing to, um, what was the fifth one? Lying, killing, lying. Stealing. Yeah, that's right. Missed that one. It's important. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Not taking what that which is not given freely. And these are trainings, not rules, or boundaries that we create for ourselves and each other to support healthy communities. And can you imagine if every community that you are a part of really held strong to our agreements with each other, like how that would change the world. Such a beautiful concern. I know that's the kind of community I want to be a part of.
where my agreements with you are honored, right? And we're really taking care to establish healthy boundaries for each other. And it's amazing what can happen in community like that. I was just, during uh, the teacher training last week, one of the things that we did was visit San Quentin, the prison in California. There's a, a program that's been happening there for a really long time called GRIP. Um, apparently you can be on the waiting list to get into GRIP for like five years. Um, and all the, the men who are in this program, it's 52 weeks, once a week for 52 weeks. And all for people who are serving out a life sentence. It was such a beautiful experience to be in community with those people. We sat through one of their sessions, two and a half hour sessions. And the way that they held each other and their agreement so firmly really gave rise to their capacity to do the inner work that they were doing, the work of mindfulness and connecting with suffering and letting that go and finding ways to cultivate um, an ethical life. Such a beautiful... I, I learned so much by their modeling of that for me. The depth of their intimacy and vulnerability far surpassed what I have been used to in my life. I'd like to bring the men in just to be with us today. Sila shows up in a number of places in the teachings of the Buddha. Shows up in the Four Noble Truths, part of the path. The Fourth Noble Truth is what the Buddha pointed to, this path of, um, this threefold path that we can follow to find freedom. And these three parts of the path, One of the parts is around virtue, so sila, and specifically around right speech, right action, and right livelihood, right? So three aspects. The other two um, parts of the Eightfold Path are continuity of awareness, the steady application of mindfulness or concentration, and then wisdom, which is what happens when um, mindfulness is established again and again and again, that naturally leads to um, and supports understanding, one of the products of mindful awareness. A fifth century Buddhist teacher, his name was Buddhaghosa, he explained sila as nature and disposition. So this like natural tendency to respond skillfully when we cultivate an inner capacity to care, um, which also includes developing an inner capacity for wisdom. And like I said, the Buddha didn't separate um, our ethics from our expression of our inner cultivation from its expression, right? So there's a relationship from with ethics to wisdom. And the Buddha wasn't actually interested in like a philosophy. He was, we, we often think that when I say the word ethics, you know, you might consider what comes to mind for you, like what 
what understanding is already there. And sometimes we can think about ethics as driven by external forces, right? Codes of conduct, um, and which is one way to think about it. But Gil Fransdahl, one of our senior teachers, um, talks about ethics as a path of maturity, like as a path of spiritual maturity in practitioners. Because what the Buddha was really pointing to with ethics is a cultivation of something from the inside that expresses itself on the outside, right? So it's both responding to and respecting boundaries and guidelines, establishing them for ourselves, but it's also this development, this inner development of wisdom and care that naturally um, is, an, is what Buddha Gosa pointed to, like this is nature, right? It's natural when there's a purity there, which might not be a, a great, the greatest word, um, but when there's a cult, when there's a, um, a practice that is about understanding greed, hatred, and delusion, and finding ways for non-greed, non-hatred, and delusion to manifest, then that expression can only be ethical, right? The expression of non-greed, not anger, not anger, non-delusion is what we talk about with, with sila. So it's both an internal and external experience. And this is from the Buddha. Wise people of great wisdom do not intend for their own affliction, for the affliction of others, or for the affliction of both. Rather, wise people think of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. It is in this way that one is a wise person of great wisdom. And also from the Buddha, wisdom is purified by virtue, and virtue is purified by wisdom. Where one is, the other is. The virtuous person has wisdom, and the wise person has virtue. And the combination of virtue and wisdom is called the highest thing in the world. Right? No separation. This combination of virtue and wisdom is called the highest, com- highest thing in the world. So cultivating sila, it can often start with, you know, it's a health, it can be healthy to start with some guidelines for ourselves because like I said before, it's in community and relational practice, it can help us feel safe, feel safer and um, feel like there's some protection for both ourselves and others when we're, we have some shared agreements. And as practice continues as practice matures, then this external motivation slowly becomes more internally. Our expression, our actions slowly become more internally motivated, right? So it moves from, let me just set these boundaries for myself, to like, oh, this really feels good to actually act in this way. It feels good to take care and not and really be careful of my speech. It feels good to really watch myself when I'm in a heated argument with my, or a heated conversation (laughs) with my partner, right? When the energy rises between us, I can feel that in my own heart. 
it makes a lot of sense for me to be careful, right? Because I actually don't want to hurt her, and I don't think she wants to hurt me, right? And that will hurt both of us if I am not careful with my speech in moments like that. So this internally motivated expression of something. And so it's, it's really about this um, practice of connecting to the truth, right? Our mindfulness practice helps us learn to connect to this, to learn how to be with this, this moment, this breath, in simple ways, right? We practice in these really simple ways so that things, when things get more complicated, we have a fighting chance of actually being there, right? If we started to practice with the most difficult thing in our life, it's hard, right? We only have so much sensitivity. But with this steady application of effort again and again and again, moment to moment, just like we are doing with the guided meditation, really simple, landing in the posture, landing in the body, saying yes to this, this resistance to the body even, right? This is how the heart is sensitized, right? And with greater sensitivity, then we notice things like the energy that arises when there's just a little bit of agitation, right? It's not even, you know, it's uh, sooner than if I were really angry and noticed it then. Like, it would be much harder to practice the ethics that I want to. But with this steady application of effort again and again, then this heart learns to be here sooner and sooner and sooner with greater subtlety, right? So maybe it's the just the arising of energy. Maybe it's felt in the belly. Or maybe it's uh, felt in the throat, right? Or maybe it's real, a little bit of tension in the shoulders or a little bit of bracing in the bottom half of the body. Or maybe it's the choppy breath. And those are good cues, subtle cues, that help us learn how to um, learn, how to learn, help us learn how to be in community in good and skillful ways. I was I had a doctor appointment a week ago or so, a little more than a week ago now, and it was at a, a different building that I'm used to going to, a big building. And I've been practicing with the body. I've had some health challenges over the last few months and really practicing with the body and exploring sila and this connection, this embodiment, and what that means to be um, connected internally and this expression that I'm talking about here. And so I was going into this doctor's appointment and I noticed like there were so many people there at this time of day. And the mind was just so interested in the variety of bodies like all it noticed, all that was there to be noticed was like the variety of bodies, tall bodies and short bodies, aging bodies, all aging bodies, some older, some younger, bodies using wheelchairs and walkers, bodies that are just learning how to walk. And the heart was so moved, you know, like, oh, I have a body. It's really hard to have a body. The body experiences so much pain, right? Pain receptors everywhere. Everybody's aging. Things fall apart. They don't work as well. 
It's not fun when they don't work as well. The body will completely fall apart at some point. So there was just this really, all this awareness of bodies and this connection with my own body and this beautiful kind of compassion that arose from that. Like, oh, I have a body and you have a body. It's hard to have a body. We're all, we're in this together, this embodied life. Like my body is going to fall apart just like your body is going to fall apart. And it's hard when that happens. It's hard to get sick. And so noticing that I sat down in the waiting room and there was just like um, a lot of uh, interest in being kind, right? It was like, it wasn't even something that I was doing, but there was just this natural capacity to listen to the person who wanted to talk to me for quite a while sitting in the waiting room or to watch as people were walking down the aisle and uh, offer space when I could, right? To move over one chair so that a couple could sit together, right? There's like natural um, expression of my own values in the form of like really supporting non-harming. Like, oh, I want to be careful of all these bodies because I have a body too. And it's not easy to have a body. So this awareness, the the sensitized um, awareness that happens over time with practice that leads to compassion and understanding that naturally wants to express itself in the kind of care and also an ethical life, right? It's like, oh yeah, I care about you. I don't want to hurt you. So I'm not going to be rude, right? I'm not going to be rude to you. I'm not going to be... I'm not going to um, overlook your needs to sit down, just like I have a need to sit down. And so one of the aspects of developing sila, it seems to me, and my own exploration, is also really getting in touch with our emotional needs. Because we're, our expression of our values our expression of morality or ethics or virtue, whatever word resonates for you, is really something that we do through our embodied nature. And part of being embodied is learning how to connect what happens in the body, the sensitive body, with what moves in the heart. And it's through that noticing mind-body connection, the heart-body connection, that we can develop some capacity to care. And often we can think about, you know, one of the maybe results of sila getting shortchanged in our culture is also this kind of prioritizing um, the development of the mind and neglecting our awareness of the body. Yet, what happens in the body is all we'll ever need for awakening. If we can learn to be sensitive here, to care about these sensations, to learn to be, um, to develop steady awareness with the sensations of the body, including, including what comes through all the sense gates and flows out of our mouths, like all of these so many ways that we can practice with the body to support our own awakening. 
So learning how to connect emotions, thoughts and emotions to what actually vibrates in the body. And this might be new to some of us, and it might not be easy for many reasons, for many reasons. So it might take some practice and training to actually learn how to land here. But when you think about it, the body really vibrates with all of our current and previous experiences. If we recognize that all experiences have some have some resonance in the body, right? We live in the world and in an embodied way, our thoughts and emotions are all connected to the body. The sensitive body resonates with all of every thought, every emotion, and has been throughout our entire life. That the, the body, the heart beats fast, the heart, the body breathes differently, you know, the temperature fluctuates, the nervous system, has all kinds of changes, the body gets inflamed and, you know, back down to a a steady, a steady place. So this is happening all the time as we move about through our lives, as we change our activities, as we vary our level of exertion. The body is, the body is landing with every moment, right? Something is resonating in the body with every moment. We often just don't know that. We often just don't attend to that or feel the changes in the body as we go through our, throughout our daily life. And we can actually move beyond like our own life, however long we've been alive, and think about like how our parents' experiences have impacted us. Like our, our mothers, they have a body. And when we are growing in their bodies, then they were, their bodies were going through all kinds of differences. And that was resonating with us. And then their mothers, you know, they grew in their mothers' bodies. Like, so you can, we can see how like, oh, even ancestral energy, this body is vibrating with ancestral energy. So this body is really an alive and dynamic place to practice. So we don't, we don't need to, it would be good to prioritize our embodied experience, our embodied lives, a little more than we do. And also respect the body's say. The body gets to have its say, right? The body's going to do what the body does. Sometimes I like to say the body has a life of its own. (laughs) I can do what I can do to take care of the body, but at the end of the day, the body's going to do what the body does, right? I can have good nutrition, give it the right exercise, I think. But when the body gets sick, the body gets sick. There's all of this stuff that's happening on the inside that I have no control over. So the only option is to care, to take care of, to do what we can do to take care of this body in this lifetime the way that we can, and then surrender to the um, surrender to nature. So asking the body, connecting with the body, and learning how to ask the body what is needed as we go throughout our lives and experience emotion and difficulty and um, relational difficulty and process challenges in our lives and in the world. Like, oh, body, I care about this life, and I know that my experiences are vibrating here. What is needed now? 
Like, what can I do now? Not as if we're going to get an answer that's going to take us through the next 20 years, but just what is needed now. And then really apply that. So maybe what is needed now is some connection. Maybe it's some eye contact or a conversation. Or maybe what's needed is some seclusion, right? To go be alone and let the body sort of settle down, right? Maybe what's needed is some engagement, some activism, some activity that um, helps us feel connected to all of what it means to be human in our society and our culture and cultures and in our communities and in the world. But we get to sort of think outside the box and not take this, um, the Buddhist teachings to mean, to sort of imply that there, there's a prescription for how we should do it every moment at every, all the time, right? We can sometimes get sucked into this like, oh, being a Buddhist practitioner means that I go to common ground, I do a half hour sit, I do some retreats, um, I develop some concentration, and when I do those things, I know I'm doing it right. No. It's not like that. <laughs> Those may be really good things to do, and they are good things to do. But the real art of being a Buddhist practitioner, being a spiritual being, is that question. Is asking that question again and again and again. Like, sweetie, what's needed right now? Like connecting to this, this body, this body that vibrates with all of our emotional experiences, all of our needs, our need for security and safety and protection for connection, right? For seclusion, for recovery, for engagement. All of these things, like connecting with that here in the process of sensitizing, becoming more and more intimate and allowing compassion and our actions, our ethical actions to flow from that. Like that's what it means to be a Buddhist practitioner. To ask, what is needed now, sweetie? Like, I care about all of that, you know, all of that, being more, being, uh, being a sensitive human being, becoming more and more sensitive, so that with more sensitivity, more subtle noticing, then I can be really alive in my life and in the world, super engaged in all the ways I want to be. So because I care so much about that, I'm going to ask this question, what is needed now? And I'm going to allow the truth to emerge. And that might mean I need to sit, I need to do more sitting practice, or I need to make my way to common ground. But it might mean that those are the, maybe that's the wrong medicine right now. Maybe what we need to do is sing or dance, right? Maybe we need to practice outside the box. Maybe we need to get off the cushion and do something physical, like do the dishes, fill the warmth of the water. Maybe we need to have a conversation. So that willingness to be, to ask, like, what's needed now again and again and again is that, is at the heart of what we're doing here. And is at the heart of developing sila. <clears throat> Time do the children come in soon, huh? 11.40? Okay. So I'm going to stop there. So there's a little bit of time for questions and comments. And I'd love to hear your reflections on sila or ethics, and even what it means to you when you hear that word, those words, the word ethics or ethical conduct, and how maybe now you're 
you have some more interest in broadening your view. Of course, questions are welcome, too. Shelley, really enjoyed your talk. Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if this is relevant. Some of the questions that I I ask uh, to Mark, he's like, it's not necessarily the most useful question. (laughs) Um, And it's just sort of the nature of my mind. I'm just wondering... um, why do you think that is? That's so interesting to me, especially in terms of some of my own um, issues around the ways in which I see um, mainstream Buddhism being practiced in the West. Why do you think that there's been this really sort of like divorcing from the sitting practice and retreats and whatever from this um, exploration um, of sila and ethical practices, and um, what do you think the effect has been in terms of sangha and you know um, the daily daily practices and you know what that looks like in our communities? I'm just this is very interesting to me. It's very it's the first time I've heard somebody actually say that, and that. Um, it's a big issue of why a lot of times in sort of like mainstream white Buddhist centers in the West, like I don't feel comfortable. And I would actually argue that I think a lot of people who are from historically marginalized communities as well also feel like there's some ethical issues as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good question and a big question that maybe we should go out to lunch and talk about more. (laughs) And a question that we're going to keep unpacking over the next four and a half years in the, or the four and a half years that the teacher training cohorts together. So, so whatever I say right now is just like, you know, so small compared to what we could talk about together. But I, I think you can't, can't ever, um, separate, well, you know, Buddhism arose in a culture at a time, and so the culture and the time impacted what Buddhism was in every place that it, it, it landed, right? So in every Asian culture, there's a difference, and Buddhism in the West is different than any of those other places. So Buddhism in the West is embedded with cultural values and um, and the trappings of that. So there's no way to get around that. And what Buddhism will become is, will be infused with the newness of our values and what we see about what has been lost and what we need to support even more. So I know that, you know, like I said, this question is really alive for us. Like, how do we reclaim Sangha? How do we reclaim the, it's a, we talk less about Sangha than we do about Buddha and Dhamma, for sure. We talk less about Sila than we do about Samadhi. So, like, how do we support a more balanced uh, practice for ourselves? I'm really interested in that. And if you're really interested in that, let's keep talking. It goes for everybody, right? Let's, let's work it out. Let's uh, find ways to move it forward. Yeah, thanks. John. Yeah, thanks, Shelley. That was that was great. Um, 
if I could, I'd like to comment on that. Um, uh, this sir, uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Isaiah Berlin, and he's really a historian of ideas. And what he was talking about was that during the um, during the Enlightenment, the rational individual became the paramount, the the thing everybody wanted to be. Well, not everybody, but so-called um, uh, thinkers. Instead of just following dogma, thinking for yourself, which is a good idea, but that is. But they divorced that from any emotion whatsoever. The idea was of a cold, objective rationality, which I think we still uh, observe, and so it would make sense to separate uh, human relationships from mind. Um, but my uh, my experience, uh, that's not really what I'm going to talk about. But um, So as a result of this training, um, I... You know, Marcus said and that, you know, once you get sensitive, there's no going back. <laughs> and I was at a, uh, a cafe in Seattle, and I had some work to do because I had to prepare for class. And so I grabbed this four-person table so I could spread my stuff out. And then uh, a man and a woman, and the woman had like a brace on her leg. And I just looked at it, and I went, oh, come on over here. I was a two-person right over there. And it just seemed like it was the natural thing to do. And I think before this, I might have thought of that, but I wouldn't have done it. I would have thought, oh, well, I'm intruding on them. I don't want to you know, get involved or whatever. But it's just a result of this training, this, this heightened awareness that has really changed me. That's it. Thank you, John. It's a great, great example. Question here. Did you have a question? Did you have a question or comment? No? Okay. Just wondering. Hi, everyone. My name is Baudelaine. Um, thank you um, for the sharing this morning. And I like the relational and the ethical aspect that um, Silas evokes. Um, like something emerging out of uh, different instances, um, different bodies, collectives, or human, non-human. Um, for me, it it's like something bigger than my own feeling, something that is situational, something that is contingent also. Um, so my question is... Um, when is it the right time to develop a community agreement, for instance, or in which form can we envision um, having some kind of agreement as a collective body, considering that um, the body as a collective also is always in negotiation? Um, and I remember I was last month part of a project um, for some very long time, and I decided... I need to take a break. And, um, and after that, someone if, came with the idea of having a code of conduct. I was offended by that because, um, well, not having a code of conduct, but um, <laughs> suggesting that we look at a code of conduct that could inform how we, we work together. But for me, this wasn't right because it didn't emerge out of the collective growing. Mm. 
And, and sometimes, often as communities, as groups working together, we do have these laws, these communities agreement. But how do we live with them as documents that are always in negotiation, that, has, that are um, opened? Um, yeah, that's the question. It's a beautiful question. So how do we live our community agreements, right? And how do we challenge forms and structures when they are oppressive, right? That, that is what I'm interested in. <laughs> that is what it means. If we can be a community that can engage in conflict for the good of community, and if we can be a community that has agreements that we uphold all the time, and are willing to, are willing to challenge when it seems like those agreements are oppressing, segments of our community? Yeah. That is a, that's a healthy community. That is, I hope, what we're, what we're heading towards at Common Ground. And the path is undefined. We get to figure it out. And it's not going to be easy or messy, but we get to do it together and practice holding each other when things get hard. Yeah. Thank you for your question. And the children are here. We could have you know, days to talk about that, but children are here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.